This is Thank You Heartbreak. Hi, everyone. I'm Chelsea Lee Trescott. As a breakup coach, relationship advice columnist, and the founder of Break Upward, Chelsea is passionate about human beings and their stories. She talks to people about their journeys in love, growth, heartbreak, revelations, and every wound and lesson along the way. This podcast shines a light on heartbreak, showing you that the most crushing experiences are also your greatest opportunity to become meaningful, relatable human beings. Now, let's get to the heart of it. Hi, everyone. This is Chelsea Lee Truscott, breakup coach and podcast host of Thank You Heartbreak. And this is episode 212 with Chad E. Foster. To skip this intro and go straight into a conversation I really do love, go to somewhere around the seven and a half minute mark. If you are new to this podcast, the intro is where I return to the scene of my crimes. Now, it's where I process what's going on in my life. And more and more, I'm finding that the processing is becoming more exacerbated by listening to these old episodes. So this episode was from March. So it just gives me a lot to think on and consider and think about how Thank You Heartbreak enabled me or enables me by editing it to return to conversations that were really healing for me and to hear them a second time from a new place I'm in to see how the conversation healed me and then how I grew with that knowledge and got to where I'm at now and then what I'm learning and experiencing now. So there's just constant ugh, growth on my end. At least that is the intention that I have when I get myself involved in anything. And so I think that we go into dating too. It's like now it's like, how am I going to use this as a exercise to as my guest says, push myself out of my comfort zone. Well, I'll tell you, I was seeing this guy that that's what he said he was looking for, was a woman that pushed him out of his comfort zone. And there was something about him, about the timing of it all, of me meeting this person in this way and me relating or something to his story. Or maybe it was just the declaration alone that he was looking to be pushed out of his comfort zone that made me want to push me out of mine. And when I saw myself showing up in these moments, I never felt more proud of myself. And I think I pivoted to really embracing and stepping into who a partner could be. I think I was one of the highest vibrations of myself. But part of that came and it looked like even to me, wow, I'm really going out of my comfort zone. I'm really showing this guy what he's asking for. I was so confident doing it. And I felt that way because I was listening to this urge. But in reality, It was challenging too to be so bold. It was challenging to say, let's go on a lunch date. Let's strip away the alcohol, the late night romance. Let's have an adventure. Let's have an experience. Let's go out for the middle of the day. Let's be those people. That was me. That was us pushing ourselves outside of our comfort zones. And the question becomes, how do you play into it? How long does it last? And if someone snaps If they say, I can't go that far outside my zone, or I don't want to yet, or I don't want to with you, what do you do? How do you adjust when it was feeling really great to go outside of your comfort zone? This is scary in a moment when someone seems to leave you behind. And do you read it as the real thing came too quick for them? Do you read it as rejection? Do you read into their story? Or do you discover your own? 
what do I take away from a date that didn't go the distance like I thought it might be able to really? I think I start taking away who I was tapping into then. I was proud of the pivot I made. I was pushing myself outside my comfort zone and I felt like it was sustainable. Like, oh, I can be that woman. I am that woman. I can show up for a person in this way. I want to do that. I can come up with ideas. I've got a spine. I've got humor. I've got sensitivity. I can see someone. I know how to support, to show love, to be optimistic, to go deep, to lean in. And I think that when you're feeling that, when you start making these empowered choices, fearless choices for yourself, you have to remember that you're going to lose people along the way because what you're really chasing is yourself, a higher vision of you. And you have to respect the people along the way that they're activating something in you, but they're not necessarily the answer. And that's so hard. That's part of the heartbreak. We want our answer in a way. We do. I'm kind of craving it. Like who's going to love me like I love? Who's going to see me like I see others? Wow. But you can get lost and lonely in just when is it my turn? And you have to think, how am I expanding my reaches and then filling them, fulfilling myself through the things that fall away? Who am I seeing that I'm becoming? Who can I be next? Who am I understanding that I can be for someone that I can be for myself? What makes me rare here? (sighs) I hope this resonated. I hope this helps in some way. And I think if anything, this is just my encouragement that at all times, try and lean in in the most genuine, sincere, capable way as possible to others and look at them as invitations. Invitations to be a rarer expression of yourself. Invitations to up-level yourself. To act uncharacteristic. To see how someone else's dynamic within themselves or with you can allow for your growth. How can you be an opportunity for someone and realize that's readying you, that's putting you in practice of eventually loving and committing to someone? And then ask, like, if you don't get love back or if you get let go of, how are you showing yourself that you've got your back? That the things that you're doing for yourself, that it's not just for others, but it's to further yourself to love, to be the most honest, bravest expression of yourself. How can you begin honoring yourself in that process and be like, wow, for the first time I see, I'm really loving myself through this. I'm loving myself through the process of showing up vulnerably for others and putting myself out there and flinging myself out there and not just asking, what am I taking from others, but what can I give? And so celebrate yourself for that. Celebrate yourself for taking the risk. Thanks everyone for letting me speak and for showing me that this means something to you too. All this heartbreak, all this learning, all of this breaking upward. Good. Uh, is that, is that a real good? You seem uncertain. No, it's just been a really busy, busy day, which has been a good thing. Took a vacation recently, a couple of them actually out of town and recovering from vacation, especially with a book launch and podcast and all of that and, and a day job has been, it's, 
it's it's been interesting, but, but I'm I'm always I'm always doing good. Doing good's a choice. Yeah. Right. It's definitely a mindset. Completely. How are you? I feel like exceptional, really. I mean, New York, the sun is out. You can feel like different vibe in the air. There's more people. And it kind of reminds me of when the seasons change. And then on top of that, obviously, with the virus, you just for so long, even on the subways, it's like no one had a pulse. And people are still very guarded more than I've ever seen a New Yorker be. But um, at least there seems like people have some of uh, their liveliness back. A little spring in this step, right? Yeah, you need it. <laughs> there's there's a little light at the end of the tunnel. People are starting to see, hey, this terrible year that we've been through, there's an end in sight, which is, I think, really important. That creates hope and optimism and, like you said, a little more energy. Great. Do you think it was really terrible, like a terrible year? For me objectively, personally? Objectively, yes. But for you personally? No, for me personally, it was not a terrible year, but no one in my family passed due to covid I didn't get any economic disruption from COVID. Yeah, it was kind of a tragedy to see some of the social unrest. Um, I didn't get affected by that personally, but it's not good to see the social unrest. The political divisiveness was not very good to see either. Did it massively affect me? No, it didn't massively affect me, but I've had better years. I've had worse years, you know, but then again, I went blind at 20 years old. So it's... uh, (laughs) Was that the worst year? Hmm... I don't know if that was, I mean, it it was probably among the worst years. Um, Growing up, though, it was hard too, right? Accepting that I had limitations that were foreboding, um, that was tough. And then, yeah, certainly in college, it probably was the worst years, you know, accepting the fact that my self-identity was no longer valid, right? How do you see yourself as a hard-charging young man looking to help people in the medical profession when you can't even see to walk. So how can you be a hard charging young man? How can you help people when you can't help yourself? Um, There's a bit of an identity crisis because, you know, I never saw myself as disabled growing up. And then all of a sudden there I was unable to see, unable to consume information, unable to even walk on my own. The hardest thing here, I think, is the fact that you knew another side of yourself. You knew the person that didn't come out like this. And so you have like a way of comparing yourself. And I think that's what's so hard to get over is that you had something before that's been taken from you. That's why I teach organizations now about organizational change management. I talk about resilience and help people learn how to adapt when things don't go their way. Because you're right. I do know what it's like to be able to see. I do know what it's like to be able to play sports and you know drive a car and ride a bike or a motorcycle or whatever. And then, yes, after 20 years, that was taken away by circumstance. Right. Like at 20 years, I mean, I'm just even thinking about dating. That's the part two of finally exposing yourself to another person. And then suddenly your identity changes what you can kind of, in a way, offer them experience wise. I imagine like at 20 for a while, you were adjusting to it. How did you bring someone into your life at that time? Well, I was, so it depends. I went through a period of kind of denying Mm -hmm. that my blindness was coming and I think the way that I dealt with it was probably not the most productive way. I did a lot of partying and things to try and distract myself from the inevitable. But certainly, first guide dog that I got at 23 years old forced me to embrace the thing that I'd been hiding from, running from, being embarrassed of my whole life. Because 
you know, we ask children all the time, what do you want to be when you grow up? None of them said they want to be a blind person. You know what I'm saying? So it wasn't like I'd aspired to it. So I was ashamed of it. Right, right, right. Wow. And so I didn't want to admit it. And then I get my guide dog and all of a sudden I'm parading around with this amazing, <laughs> oh beautiful, That's gorgeous. That's the word. That's the word parading around. With this beautiful symbol. And, and there he is. This yeah, th this beautiful symbol that I have a visual problem. And so that forced me to get vulnerable like immediately. And it forced me to love me. But, you know, it was a good thing. It compelled me to really lean into who I am. And and now, I mean, uh, are, are, are we recording? Yeah, we no? are. We, we are. are. So it 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 forced me to love me at first in spite of my imperfections, but eventually because of my imperfections. And um, I learned something about that. It taught me a lot about accepting oneself, taught me a lot about authenticity. I learned at that point to be unapologetically authentic to who I am and not worry so much about what other people think and what society thinks. And I just decided to have an attitude of this is who I am. I didn't sign up for all aspects of my situation. I didn't ask to be blind. None of us ask for everything that we're given in life. But you know what? We've got to own it. It's my life. I didn't ask for all of my circumstances. I didn't ask for the, the blindness, the disability. But I have to figure out how to own it, make it mine, and make it look good. I mean, what I think is so wild about it, though, is here you're awakening and you're like, you know, you're seeing the light. You're doing mm -hmm. it in the dark. And I feel like often we think that in order to get something intellectually or to embody something, we have to be in clear view. We have to see ourselves. And I think what's amazing about your thing is that so much of the shame and the vulnerability is about how we think that we're exposing ourselves. And so we try to like, you know, look different, put on filters on Instagram and stuff. And here, for you to really get it, you didn't have access anymore to how you looked while it was all happening. Like I'm thinking about you on the street for the first time with your dog. And it's true. It's like, wow, talk about having to lean into something. But did you feel shame at first, like this self-consciousness about how you looked and how you were being received and what was happening? Without the dog, yes. Um, and eventually, yeah, maybe kind of with the dog too. Before I get into that, though, I do want to illustrate something that came to mind when you were saying that people, when they talk about clarity of vision, you know, they tend to associate that with the outside world. They tend to associate that with what they see. And the gift that I was given, the gift of blindness that came in really ugly wrapping paper mm -hmm. for me was it compelled me to look inside of myself for vision. And so while my mm -hmm. eyesight was terrible, my vision became clearer and it became mm -hmm. clear because it forced me to connect with me, the true me, deep inside of me, stripped of all of these surface level bells and whistles. Mm. And so look, if, you know, we're all, well, I mean, when <laughs> I could see, we're, we're all distracted with what our eyes are telling us, right? We see Instagram and we see all the videos and pictures and Facebook and it's constant flood of information to our brains. Stripped of that, I had no constant flood of information. So what did I do? Right. I thought, I've reflected, well, I contemplated what I wanted out of my life. I contemplated my future. What did I really want to get out of life? What could I get out of life? Who was I? What was I going to let affect me? What was I not going to allow to affect me? And so it was really this 
transformation that took place, not because of what was outside of me, but more importantly, what was inside of me. So from that aspect, I think it really helped me get comfortable with who I am. Now to your question, was I uncomfortable? Was I self-conscious? Me walking into a, a university classroom with a hundred pound German shepherd for the first time, it's a little uncomfortable. You start getting used to it. I then graduated. I go to job interviews and I'm going in with a German shepherd. Not a lot of people go interview for a job with a hundred pound German shepherd. And then it's, I'm traveling. I get a job with Anderson Consulting, now known as Accenture. And I'm traveling. I go into the office, meeting people with a German shepherd. I'm traveling, mm-hmm. living in Atlanta, traveling to other cities and hotels and all that's uncomfortable. And now recently, you know, 10 years ago, started traveling internationally with my guide dog because of the role that I'm in now and going to countries where you don't speak the language, can't read the signage, are right. using a guide dog. And you've got a three inch sheaf of paper to get the dog into the country. Oh, wow. But I'm still getting up at 5 a.m. to go to the gym to work out because that's my identity. It's who I am. And not being able to find the gym easily or the equipment that I need to find, all of those things are uncomfortable. My life has been an experiment of living outside of my comfort zone. And now for me, Mm. outside my comfort zone is the norm. I'm used to it. I am comfortable with discomfort, which allows me to push myself and to experience more growth and continue to expand the edges of my comfort zone. It sounds like you're not someone that feels helpless. No, I'm in the driver's seat. Okay. That's how I see it. I'm in the driver's seat of my life. And Chelsea, I hope you're in the driver's seat of your life. And I hope all the listeners are in the driver's seats of their life. Because if there's not, if they are not in the driver's seat, nobody else is. Mm -hmm. Nobody's driving your life for you, but you. Yeah. I mean, because you so easily could have said, you know, I'm not going to take my career to this level. I'm not going to go international. It's just a burden at this point. That's an example of you expanding the edges of your comfort zone. That's right. And I continue to do that, whether it's in the corporate world or, you know, writing this book or giving keynote addresses all over the world or going skiing. I just got back. I mentioned I was on PTO a couple of weeks ago. I was in Aspen, Colorado for the week. Second ski trip this year. We're out on blacks and double black diamonds. And I didn't know how to ski before I went blind. I learned how to ski seven years ago. I mean, I saw a video of you doing it. I just was in awe. I mean, not only because I want to be that person and I always talk about that, but then that like you were doing it and you were doing it at such a hard level. I couldn't get over it. Honestly, like how is any of this happening? When you go to a foreign country mm-hmm. and you have to go somewhere, it's not like the dog is a GPS, right? Like you no. have to, how does it work? The dog is point to point. So the dog is fantastic at finding the next obstacle or turn or landmark. So for example, I'm at the curb to my hotel, step out of the car, collect the dog, tell him inside door. So I tell him you know, left, right, inside door. And the dog is really good at looking left and looking for a door that goes inside. Wow. He'll take me to the door and then it's all right. I need to know roughly where the countertop is in this hotel that I've never been to. Uh-huh. So I need to pause, listen, and then explore and tell the dog like left countertop. I've taught him what a countertop is. Um, I've taught him what, you know, lots of things are escalators. And what about a blonde and, woman? I, I don't have to do that because they come to me. Um, mm-hmm. Ironically, when you're <laughs> when you have a cute German shepherd, right. they, they tend to attract. Really? The, the, oh, uh, like, maybe sure. it's the glasses, too, and your luck. I don't know if it's just the German shepherd. That probably doesn't hurt a whole lot. Oh, but, my but, you God. Know, when I was in college, my buddies used to give me a hard time because I would take my dog 
we would go out to bars and clubs and things, and they would say, you know what? Give me the dog. This is no fun because for about two years, I didn't buy my own drinks. They wanted to change his name from Miles to Magnet. That was my first. Oh, my God. Yes. Yes. (laughs) There are a few advantages to going blind. Not a lot. You know, there are a few advantages. So you want to take advantage of the ones that there are. What is the most common way in with you when people come up to you? The most common is beautiful dog. Love your dog. Uh He's amazing. (laughs) No, that's by far the, the most common. Huh. Do you like or care when people ask questions? Oh, no, I'm an open book, Chelsea. I mean, you can ask me whatever. Uh, I think it's just because like this desire, I would feel like for direction to know, like, you know, just to kind of understand what it's like for you. So I know like the type of experience we could have, I guess. I would feel like in dating, I would have such curiosity for that reason too. Yeah. And I've been asked a lot of questions and frankly, I've had a lot of the same questions, right? right? Before I went blind. I didn't know how I was going to do anything. As I was going blind, I had all of the same, maybe not all the same, but many of the same questions. So I've had some really bizarre questions, but what I try to do, Mm -hmm. I know number one, I'm this ambassador. I am, you know, to oversimplify it, I'm a walking, talking stereotype. So how many blind dudes with a guide dog are you going to meet in the corporate world? Mm -hmm. Probably not a lot, right? I'm probably going to be one of the only ones Mm -hmm. that many people meet. Now, some people might meet more than one. So I've realized that the way we all work is we tend to go to that one reference point that we know as a basis for how we think about a certain type of people. And that's that's stereotyping 101. And that's just how the human brain works. That's not meant to be a dig on anybody. It's just how it works. So I know that I am going to be for many people, you know, what they think of when they think of a blind dude with a dog. So I try to make sure that it's a positive experience and I try to meet people where they are and demonstrate the fact that, look, I had some of the same questions and try to be as patient as I can be, it allows me to, I think, bridge two divides, right? You've got where I came from, which is the privileged white majority. And where I navigated to was the disabled Mm. minority. Mm. And so thinking about my experiences through completely different prisms allows me to empathize with people in a way that maybe otherwise wouldn't be possible. I believe that we are, as people, 99.99% alike genetically. And so the very tiny differences among us are due to the collective experiences in our lives. And so if you and I had been raised in similar situations, we would probably have similar points of view. And so that that gives me a little bit of humility and it allows me to be naturally curious to where I want to learn from you and find out, you know what, she believes what she believes because of these experiences. Let me learn Mm. what allowed her to arrive at that conclusion and, and maybe I'll learn something from it. Mm. You were coming from a different prism, you were saying, and being privileged and all this. And then you have to accept that now you're suddenly of this minority. What about your family or people that were close to you that maybe had never met anyone either that felt like they were, you know, immune maybe to not having privilege? Yeah, I think everybody around me handled it pretty well. I think my attitude probably shapes a lot of that because. If we hang out, you'll forget that I can't see. My wife, my family, like they forget, like I'm not a blind husband, father, Mm. whatever to them. And, you know, my wife will sometimes ask me to do things and I have to remind her, yeah, I can't exactly do that. I'd love to, (laughs) but I can't do that. So they don't, right. They don't treat me any differently. And I wouldn't want them to treat me any differently, quite frankly, because that's not what I'm about. You know, some people, 
Maybe they get offended about certain words that people use when they're referring to certain groups. Mm-hmm. For me, it's blind. And, and it's like, oh, did you see the game? I've had people tell me like, we're in a conversation. Oh, did you see the game? Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say, can you see? And I'm like, come <laughs> on, man, give it a rest. You don't have You're to like, I get that. it. <laughs> you don't have to change your entire language mm-hmm. that you use because of me. Just be you, right? right. I be in, as long as you can I know, adapt to it, you can well, adapt. Yeah. I can, but it's also about, and here's where I think people miss the mark a lot in conflict. Okay. They're separating intent from impact. Mm. And if I know your intent is good, you can say anything to me. You Mm. can be brutally honest with me if I know you care about me and your intent is good. Mm. Now, your impact can be terrible. It could be really a really offensive thing to say, but you didn't know that. And Mm. you were intending something to be, you know, really, it was well intended. Mm-hmm. And as long as people know, and I think this is the big mistake that a lot of people make, as long as we know that people's intentions are good, we can start to separate the intent from impact and help guide people say, look, I know you weren't trying to make me feel this way, but you did. And oh, by the way, I know kind of who you are as a person. And so I'm giving you this coaching so that you can be a little more mindful of it. But, you know, the um, in it's terms a blind of, spot for them and you're calling attention to it. It's a blind spot for a lot of people. And I don't really like I don't go there because I don't really need to. It's related to me. Right. I don't really get offended by anything that people say anymore. I used to years ago because I've had some pretty bizarre things said to me. Really? Like, what are we talking? Oh, well, I've had somebody come up to me. I was at the gym. Mind you, I'm at the gym. I'm 26 years old. I'm pretty, I'm pretty buff too. I'm pretty. Yeah. I knew you were going to go there. I knew that that's what you were going to say. Well, no, I, because it helps to, (laughs) helps to paint a picture for For people. I'm not helpless, right? I'm not some poor helpless. I'm pretty ripped up and I'm at the gym by myself working out with my dog. And somebody comes up to me and goes, Oh my God, you're blind. I'm so sorry. Who feeds your dog for you? What? I mean, I got a job. I'm traveling, you know, all over the country by myself. This inference that I can't take care of the dog. There's another time. When I was wait wait, wait. In, how did you handle that? I just I just sort of you know brushed it off and said right no, I, you don't I go like dog. you didn't no you didn't you feed can't. into it you can't no pun intended <laughs> yeah <laughs> you can't you can't just to get on that pun you can't continue to feed that kind of thing because it's going nowhere right. if someone has that kind of you know how fair would it be for me to dismantle that person right because oh of that right that's oh my not really god. A, that's amazing. Thing. You're so powerful. This is it's amazing. It's so real. You're like, I could dismantle them. It's not fair, right? It's yes. just not fair. And then there was another occasion, you know, I'm with my wife and we're having dinner with a couple in Northern Virginia at the time we lived there. And this obviously very intoxicated lady comes up and just gets in the floor and starts petting my dog that has a mm-hmm. sign on it that says, do not pet me. I'm working. And I politely turn to her and say, I'm sorry, you can't pet the dog. He's working. And she keeps petting the dog. So I finally take her hand and remove it from the dog. And I said, I said, you're not allowed to pet the dog. He's working. And she gets up angry and obviously intoxicated and said, well, that's why you're blind. Because you're so mean, you don't let people pet your dog. Right. And I didn't want to point out the fact that I actually went blind before I got the dog. That would have been a little too obvious. But you hear everything. Some people, I think, are well-intended. Others are just ignorant. But I've heard it all. You know, that's the thing. It's like, I have clients that continually are trying to make sense of an ex's actions. And it's like some people, they snap. 
there's no reality to what that woman said. There's no truth to it. Like she can say anything. It's nonsense. It's just meant to fight back somehow and try to gain power. It's not like there's really any truth to anything that she said. And you can get so hung up on thinking, oh my God, you know, was I a certain way that caused this? It's like, no, she's just off her fucking rocker. Exactly. It's arrogance, right? And this is what I think the enemy of dialogue and mutual respect is. It's it's arrogance and self-righteousness. People get this feeling of, Mm. I have all the answers. Mm -hmm. Uh, Instead of having just a dab of humility, Mm -hmm. a lot of curiosity, if everybody had just a smidgen of humility, and I'm not the most humble person, right? I'm a confident guy, but I don't think I have all the answers either. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's the curiosity piece. If people can just have a lot of curiosity, check the self-righteousness and arrogance at the door. Um, There's a difference between, you know, having confidence in my abilities and myself versus thinking I know everything and, and, you know, thinking I can't learn something from somebody else. That I think is what this particular individual had is just she, she, and the alcohol probably didn't help her much. And ironically, her 16 year old ends up pulling her away and, and apologizing for her mom, right? I'm sorry for my mom. And she pulls her out of the restaurant. And, but I think, if we could all just be a little more curious, right? And not think we have all the answers and not think that we know what it's like to walk in someone else's shoes. Because I thought I could at least imagine what it was like to be in someone else's shoes until I went blind. And then Mm. after all of these experiences, I quickly realized that I have no clue. Mm. There's no way that I could possibly imagine what a blind person went through, what someone of a different race or gender or whatever goes through. I can't possibly imagine that. Mm-hmm. I thought I could at first, but my my shift in my life from one group to the next demonstrated to me that, you know what, Chad, you really don't have a clue. So I think that empathy, leadership, humanity really is about meeting people where they are, mm-hmm. not about where we assume they should be. Right. Which is like, oh my God, the biggest thing I... I hate to bring it back to dating too, but it reminds me so much of when you meet someone, you're thinking about their potential. So you're always playing to the potential, trying to guide them into mm-hmm. their possibility, which is just the idea that you have for your life, not necessarily the agenda that they have for theirs. And so I think that like, you know, when you're meeting people and dating, the only honest way to do it really is to meet people exactly where they are, to believe them that they're here for a reason, instead of trying to enforce them to be where you need them to be in order to have the relationship that you want in life. I love that. That's profound. I think a lot of people make the mistake of trying to change people instead of, you know, we all do what you say. I'm guilty of that too, right? We have a certain concept of what we think and how do we learn to, and, you know, we all want to be better versions of ourselves, but want to stay true to who we are deep down, but trying to make someone else be true to who we are, that just never works, right? Mm. Yeah. I mean, started to realize more and more. It's like, I think everyone just gets me because I'm so open or, and then I was like, no, it's because I've been with myself for so long. So I get me so easily. Mm-hmm. But if a lot of people are meeting a lot of different people all the time and they come across you, I mean, they're not going to just get it. They're going to look for reasons to understand, you know, and I just was realizing more and more kind of how much guidance you almost have to provide someone just in order to trust that they're getting to know you. Yeah, I definitely, I'm pretty easy to get to know because I'm what you see is what you get. Because there is, when I meet someone, oftentimes there's this unspoken tension until they talk to me. Like, 
Right. Like I mentioned about choosing the words and all of that. Yes. And then I'll drop a few blind jokes, right? And, right, and right. You're like, it's pretty, okay. Pretty yeah. soon they're like, I get it. Okay, cool. He's cool with it. I don't have to feel weird about it. Mm-hmm. And then it can be a lot more organic. And I do that dating. Yes. You know, when I was in the dating scene, I do that in the conference room, in the boardroom. I do that on mm-hmm. stage when I'm giving a keynote presentation because I realize mm-hmm. in order to get people to hear what we have to say, they have to be comfortable with us. And some of this gets into navigating different groups. You know, we expect other people to make an effort. We have to make an effort too to make people comfortable with us. And so I use a lot of humor to bridge that divide. You know, it's the thing that disarms the tension and makes people ready to hear and listen Mm. and and be more casual and comfortable. So, you know, jokes and humor is my go-to. And I think it's, it's, you know, super effective for cutting through all the nonsense. Well, I also think it brings a bit of levity to something that could feel so heavy or weighted down. I think it's that way when I'm even just talking to someone and want to get deeper with them, is that making sure that there's flashes of laughter makes someone feel like it's not going to be just a burden here, or this person isn't burdened by these conversations. Well, yeah, absolutely. It shows that I don't take things so seriously. Like this thing, I'm not taking so seriously that it weighs me down, right? right? I'm lighthearted about it. Yeah, I got issues that I deal with, right? I've got real issues that I deal with, but it doesn't define me. It's not even going to slow me down. It's not even going to change my attitude at all. In fact, Mm. probably help my attitude because for me, it forced me to reevaluate my perspective on life, my focus, my effort, and my determination. And it's, it's taught me what resilience is and what happiness and success are in a way that I don't think it would have learned any other way. Is there anything that you can say that you think that people get wrong the most about resilience? Like how they misunderstand it, maybe what they need in order to have it. So what resilience is at its core, and this is the soundbite, but there's a lot more to this, but the soundbite is resilience is the stories that we choose to tell ourselves. I love that you have that as a definition. Wow. It's the stories that we tell ourselves. So none of us can control our circumstances in life, but we all control the stories that we tell ourselves. And the mm-hmm. stories we tell ourselves are so important because at the end of our lives, we all become the stories that we tell ourselves. So I could sit around and tell you and everyone else that I went blind because I'm a victim and mm-hmm. poor me and I have terrible luck. And that's who I would be. Mm-hmm. Or I could tell myself of, I went blind because I'm one of the very few people on the planet with the strength and toughness to overcome yes. that and help others. Mm-hmm. And technically both of those stories are correct. One of those frames me up to be a victim and keeps me trapped. The other one allows me to bounce back. Yeah. And that there's a gift in it. Like you were chosen to have this experience because you can handle it. I felt that with my eating disorder. It was so easy to, to feel like, you know, the people that like chased me and said things to me, I could feel like I was being bullied, but I really saw it as I was feared. And I was someone that could handle uh, what I heard people saying and all of that in order to then be able to talk about it with people. Because some would feel so angry about that or so all these things, like a victim. I saw it as a real, like somehow an opportunity that I knew that I could handle it. And I think that the world kind of, you know, knew that too. If you tell yourself you can handle it, then you can. If you tell yourself that it's too much, then it's too much. Mm. And, you know, at some point we have to control the narrative in our minds. Mm. We all have these stories playing in our brain. We all have good stories. We all have bad stories. We have to learn how to turn the dial up on the ones that take us where we want to go and turn the, the dial down on the ones that don't because they're not serving any purpose other than creating 
this false narrative or a destiny that we don't want to live because eventually our stories in our brain become the words that we use, become the friends that we keep, become the actions that we take, our behaviors, and eventually our outcomes. I'm so curious about why we share this in common because I say heartbreak is often because of the story that someone is telling themselves about what happened to them. But I've spoken to a lot of people and I've rarely heard people address that on their own. People will agree with me, but mm-hmm. people haven't committed their their book or their coaching practice or their life philosophy ever, do I hear, to the stories we tell ourselves. I'm extremely passionate about this. It's the foundation. It's one of the most fundamental building blocks of resilience, you know, and it feeds mm-hmm. into, I like to talk about our vision of greatness for ourselves, which is inextricably linked. We have to survey the situation, right? What's our current basket of circumstances? Certain things are inside what I call our sphere of influence. Certain things are outside our sphere of influence. The things that are outside our sphere of influence, like for me, blindness, I have to figure out how to make that look good. If Mm -hmm. I can never make that look good in my mind, Mm -hmm. I'm screwed. I don't have a chance. Mm -hmm. Okay. Happiness, forget about it, right? Success, forget about it. I'm a victim. But if I can imagine a new vision for myself that includes those unchangeable circumstances like blindness and paints a picture that's bold and inspiring enough to get me motivated that looks so good that I can get behind it. All of a sudden, I'm moving towards acceptance without even knowing it. And then I can look at the things inside my sphere of influence. Like For me, I had to relearn how to learn. I had to figure out how I was going to consume information, get a degree, get a job, uh, you know, get promoted, actually earn some money, figure out how to you know, give a keynote, write a book, all these things. I could control all those things. None of them were easy, but with effort, they could be done. And with a really bold and inspiring vision of greatness mm. for myself, it motivated me to action so that I could actually fulfill all those things. But it all started with the narrative. You know, what story am I telling myself? And mm. you know, at first, I was asking myself this question, why me? And I was asking this question with a really bitter tone, a really bitter tone. It was angry. It was sad. It was a victim's tone. But over time, after a year or two, I learned that that wasn't taking me where I wanted to go. So I needed to ask the question, but I needed to ask it with more curiosity. Yes. And so by injecting more curiosity into that question, why did this happen to me? That's when I arrived at these new answers and these new answers took the same circumstances, but reframed them in a way that took me forward instead of holding me back. Mm-hmm. It's like, what is this for? You know, I, I love that. The switch with curiosity injecting why me with this wonder. Completely. Sorry, you're so good at this. Like, I'm like, this is exactly how I feel, but it's a different framework for looking at everything. And I was thinking mm-hmm. about like my apartment, my life in New York and I feel mm-hmm. very fortunate about where I live, but it was the first time where I haven't changed apartments. And a big reason for that is I didn't want to have to put another application proving my income, right? Like it can be very hard to get an apartment. But with that said, you know, I was still in the same place for like six years. I'm in a basement. 
I don't have glass, the light coming in. And it's like an old building. And every day I'd feel trapped in this space that was reflecting to me that I wasn't getting anywhere. And, you know, finally during this quarantine, I was like, dude, I'm going to be trapped inside of this place. I have to be enjoying this. And I finally got the place painted. I got all this crazy lighting. So now it looks like a club. And I found a way to really embrace it. It's crazy, but like embrace the fact that I am in a dungeon. But how could I do the coolest thing with it that will remind me that during this time when I was trying to make it in New York, I lived in this place and that vibe was inspiring. It was like this bold act like you're talking about. And it helped me rethink and re-see and re-experience the space that I'm in. So now I feel like I'm really celebrating it. I feel so fortunate to be able to, while I'm single, to have this crazy Club Chelsea experience. I mean, it could be the last time that I get to live out loud so much. You made it look good. Yeah, I made it look good. That's so funny about what you're saying. (laughs) Seriously, I swear to God. That's Uh, awesome. I love that. What you did was you took the same basket of circumstances and you reframed it. And you reframed it with action. You first had to envision what it looked like. What does good look like to Chelsea in this basement? Mm -hmm. You figured that out and then you took action on it. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. I love it. Intention has been a big word that has come up. I've been dating finally. And then we'll ask, you know, what my intention is. They'll know what I do for a living. And they'll wonder if I'm just curious because I have a podcast and that's what I'm good at. Am I just on these dates to collect information for my clients? Am I just on an app to promote my business? It's always about intention. Mm. And it's been really wild because I've I've realized that part of me being single and choosing to lead my own life was to become really clear about who I was and why I was doing the things I was doing and to have faith that it was coming from an honest place whenever I brought someone into my life, right. not out of dependency, not out of trying to distract myself, nothing. And I really, for these years of being single, I know myself. I really can rely on myself and to know again, that I'm choosing honestly. So to have someone question my intentions, I realized for the first time, like, wow, when you put in all this work and you did it to really stay with your thoughts and figure yourself out, when someone challenges that, I don't mind the challenge in the beginning, but if they keep on persisting with it, I'm like, dude, this is a you problem. And I've worked too hard to trust in my own intentions to have someone questioning me because for the first time I seem kind of above all the noise of dating and needing and desperation and all this games. Yeah. I think people tend to carry baggage, you know, to and from relationships. Right. So it sounds like they ask you once that's maybe that's okay. If they keep asking over and over, then, you know, it sounds to me like they're bringing some insecurities to the relationship. Right. And I realized for the first time, because it's like, finally, I'm like seeing it with you know, clear eyes, or I'm finally hearing it, but I'm like, oh my God, that is what this is. And that really does damage a dynamic that you're trying to create. I, I finally see that, oh my God, that is something that's unhealed. That's a story that they are telling themselves that they keep bringing into it and they want me to play into that. So I'm another example of someone that didn't have good intentions, let's say. Dude, for the first time, it's like, I don't want to play the part of someone that proved you wrong or something. Well, and who does, right? We have to know what our boundaries are. And I think at that point, especially, you know, in a relationship early on, I think, you know, demonstrating, showing what the boundaries are is very important. What are the boundaries? What am I, Chelsea, willing to tolerate? Are you going to keep asking me this question once a week, once every two weeks? Am I going to let you continue to do that? Or if, you know what, if you're continually willing 
to violate this boundary that I think erodes our trust with one another. If this is bothering you that much and you can't respect the boundaries, then it's probably not going to work out, right? Because I'm not going to be able to be, well, to be me, right? I'm not going to be able to be me if you're constantly questioning whether or not I'm you know, having high integrity or being honest with you, that's not a foundation for a healthy right. relationship. Right. Wow. I mean, I've always said that I don't understand boundaries. I don't do them, but I, I just don't even think I realized that that's what I was doing or what I am doing now. You know, so many men in the past, they would question the relationships that I had with other men and men have always been a huge part of the impact and influence and inspiration in my life. Really? They would question relationships with other men? Yeah. And yeah, I am the opposite. I, I don't even want to know. Like, that's just, it serves no purpose to me. Right. When I was dating and, you know, my wife, look, I don't care what you did before me. It should not be relevant. Right. Whatever you did, whomever you were with, I don't want to know. Uh, you don't want to know who I was with. All it does is introduce FUD into the relationship. I don't know of anything good that comes out of sharing intimate details yeah. with your partner, right? All it's going to do is create doubts and insecurity. So we made a pact. I'm not going to ask. You don't ask. What's the point? It serves no purpose. It's just now going to parents, harm the relationship. Did that, and I never understood it because I used to be the person that pried under this, you know, guise of intimacy. And I realized it was really a way of saying to myself, "Oh, I'm not going to be good enough for them," or I would judge them. It was really a way of putting up this barrier. That's not what I meant, though. I meant that they would ask about my relationships now with men. So if I have friendships with men, really doubting, saying that, well, if you don't want anything with them, you know, you're naive to think that they're actually want a friendship with you. And what would happen was an influence that I like in my life, which are men, it would end up having to become just about this one person, the one guy I was with. And for the first time I've been catching it in dating now is that this is an insecurity that they can't have trust in me that I haven't slept with this person, or I don't want to sleep with that person. And in the past, I would have bended to them and got rid of the people. And I realized Ooh. that's not me. Yeah. So they need to adjust or take off because I'm not going to spend my time defending this and then say, this is exhausting to defend. So I'll just get rid of the thing that bothers you. It's like, if you're so bothered, I'm getting rid of you. Prove to me that you didn't do something. It's impossible. And it is exhausting. Who wants to continually chase their tail? At the end of the day, I think we all need relationships that allow us to grow and expand. And that to me is one of those that creates this sense of atrophy in a relationship, right. it's not growth. So restrictive. So restrictive. Yeah. But again, it's, I think that in the past, when I would get into relationships, there was no fucking clarity to any of this because I was so depressed at the time and so mm -hmm. desperate, afraid of being alone. Mm -hmm. I, like, I think I knew, but I didn't connect the dots. When someone introduces insecurity and you start defending it, that's where there's like this balance between high and lows. You have this anxiety that uh, you're not close to someone. They'll make a problem and you'll feel close to them and you'll feel this relief for a while. And that is what builds the codependency. And some people like that restriction because their world feels smaller and more manageable. It's like suddenly just about you and this other person because other people are threats. And I'm like, dude, wow. that, that just like squeezed the life out of me for so long. And now when I think about relationships, I always think about this word about expansion and growth, like you just said, but I don't think it's too romantic a notion to think that with the right person in the right point with yourself, that who you're with would be expanding your life. That's the idea. And if it's not, then 
maybe I'm naive and maybe that's, you know, harder. Well, certainly it's not easy to find, but it's there. And I think we should all expect it, right? We should all demand it and not just from our relationships, but from ourselves, right? Right, Again, getting back to expanding our comfort zones and those sorts of things. I believe if we're not growing, we're slowly dying. I want to continue to push my comfort zone and expand and grow both individually and in my relationship and professionally and athletically and everything. I just have this burning desire to be just a little bit better. And uh, the way that I know to do that is to you know, continue to push myself and challenge myself to be just a little bit better every day in, in all aspects. So how does that work for you? Are you someone that has these goals? Like, is it very defined what's going to make you better? Or is it just you like into it on a daily basis? What would be the better choice for you right now? Well, I think it's a combination of things. So I have goals for myself, milestones, you could call them multi-year sort of things that I look for, whether it be, you know, certain professional endeavors that I'm chasing or relationship things, certain big picture, big, you know, like large goals that are multi-year things. But then it's really like those change a little bit, right? Those aren't really the important aspect of it. I think the important aspect of it for me, and I don't want to, I guess I shouldn't have said it exactly like that. Goals are important, but having the habits to get to the goals are really where the rubber meets the road. So do I have the daily habits that allow me to get to where I want to go? Because the destination may change a little bit, right? The destination may be, you know, 20 degrees to the left or to the right. And my speed may change. My speed, maybe I'm using a sailing analogy. Maybe I'm, you know, at 10 knots and I need to be at eight knots for a little while. And and maybe it's, you know, I can speed up to 13 knots, but I need to make sure that I'm moving towards the destination, wherever that destination is. And for me, that's about having, you know, consistent habits. It's effort. There are certain things that I hold myself to, and it's a daily thing. So yeah, I want to have, you know, a three to five year plan for me. Not like super detailed, but what are my big goals that I'm going for and what sort of habits are going to get me there? And what are the things that I need to do in the meantime? What are the checkpoints that I've got? You know, what are the things that I think are going to help me get to that point? And am I creating the right sustainable habits to Mm -hmm. get there? Because it has to be sustainable, right? Our life choices have to be sustainable, whether it's, you know, people in the latest fad, the latest diet fad is not sustainable, then it's probably not worth doing, right? You might see results for six months. You jump off the wagon and you completely go to the opposite direction. And Totally. You just bounce to the next thing. Yeah. So my big thing is whatever I choose. So my exercise routine, I get up every day at 5 a.m. and work out. That for me is sustainable. I made a life choice that I would rather work out than to be overweight, right? That was my choice. I'd rather get up at 5 a.m. and work out than to be overweight. I would rather eat less carbohydrates, no junk food, uh, no sodas or anything like that than to be overweight. Have any room for indulgence or no? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You have to have room for indulgence because if you don't, it's not sustainable. Completely. You will completely, and look, we were in Aspen, Colorado a week ago. I indulged all week, all week. I indulged, you know, I was burning a few thousand calories a day, which was helpful, but I still overconsumed. And I knew I was overconsuming, but you know what? That was my gift to me. When I got back to my regular routine, I'm back to what I do. You know, I still wear the same jeans as I did in high school, right? I, I, wow. I still, yeah. So it's one of those things I've made a life commitment and this gets into 
we talk about identity, right? This is a really important concept for all of us to think about. How do you identify? Do you identify as a gym rat or somebody who likes to work out? Or are you the kind of person who tells yourself that I don't work out? Or are you a smoker? Do you identify as a smoker or a non-smoker? The way you choose to identify influences your behavior. And so if you see yourself as a smoker, you're probably not going to quit. Once you stop seeing yourself as a smoker, if people choose to smoke, then you can stop. It really is that self-identity. And that gets back to the stories that we tell ourselves. And I identify as someone who is committed to living a lifestyle of staying in shape and eating healthy foods and occasionally splurging. So I can sustain that over time, but it is a commitment, right? And it is having the right habits and accountability for yourself. Cause I, you know, I got back from the slopes, right. And then started putting on my clothes and going, you know, it's a little tight. I'm going to have to you know, really buckle down and you know, get back to where I want to be. But it's just, it's holding yourself accountable, right? It's having a sustainable lifestyle, but also holding yourself accountable. I think a lot of my life, I really saw it start transforming when I stopped looking or expecting, you know, for me to get something, I guess, and then life to change. I thought that was always the thing. You know, I get the master's degree and suddenly I'm the person that can write every day. I'm suddenly the person that doesn't need to take Adderall. And it was a really hard thing to all along knowing that that wasn't actually going to be real, but always betting, always gambling on it. But then to finally listen to the voice inside of me that said it was from these micro things every day that you have to do, that is ultimately what has sustained the change. It's harder to see. People don't like celebrate you for it because a lot of it is these invisible efforts. But at the end of the day, that's, um, that's how you don't crash. That's how you can trust that you've become someone changed that's grown. Life rewards action. It's not like there's some event that happens and we're transformed. I like the way that you've talked about it. It's like a series of micro events that happen. Like skiing. Yeah. I mean, it's not like I showed up one day and said, all right, I'm going to ski a double black diamond. It wasn't like that. You know, can't see. I had to first get comfortable with the concept of the fact I was putting on a pair of bindings, which I'd never done, right? For the first time and hurtling myself down a mountain, albeit, you know, a bunny slope or a green or whatever. And then gradually just continuing to expand that, right? So it was inch by inch getting comfortable with taking on more and more and more. But once you start with the smallest thing, you start proving to yourself that you can do it, right? And I have people come to me all the time because I used to be a personal trainer back in the day. Like, how can I get in shape? I'm like, you know what you can do to get in shape? Mm. Best thing you can do. Go to the gym every day for a month. Don't even work out. Go to the gym at the same time. Create a routine. You don't have to work out. You just have to be there. The hardest part is making it your lifestyle. Pretty soon, you'll get bored enough while you're at the gym and you'll start working out and then you'll get in shape. But the most important part, the hardest part, isn't the working out. It's creating the habit, the routine. I know. Oh, because it's giving up a part of your lifestyle and trading it in. I mean, it's usually trading it up. You said in this interview, I have to quote it because I just loved this. It goes perfectly with what we're saying. You said, our willingness to accept our current circumstances is inversely proportional to our ability to create change. When we want to move through an obstacle more than we want to watch TV, then we are on our way. When we want to achieve our goal more than we want to sleep late, then we have a chance. When we want our objective more than we want to breathe, then we will not be denied. I speak fuck. 
Yeah, I'm a little hardcore, I guess you no, could No, but it's like, that's, <laughs> no, but like in my mind, it's that hardcore. And I think that's why it's so daunting because it's like, there's such reality to it. I mean, the fact even that you say it with grace, I mean, it's not even harsh. It's like, you know, if we stop watching TV, we set ourselves up to have a chance. I mean, that's the thing. It's not guaranteed that we'll get it, but at least we know that we're giving ourselves a chance. And it's crazy how even for myself, I have such a hard time going to sleep early. It reminds me of knowing that I had to stop taking pills, but not being able to do it for eight years. But knowing that one mm-hmm. day I was going to finally have to decide, I feel that way a bit about like not going to bed early is that I know one day to really get to the next thing, I'm going to have to give it up. And it feels so hard to say that today is the day that I give myself a chance to see if there could really be a difference. What's your story? What's my story? What's your story? I mean, are you telling yourself that it's too hard and you don't want to give it up? Or are you telling yourself that this is the last hurdle I need to clear to get mm-hmm. what I really, truly want out of life? And if whatever your next objective is, if you want it worse than you want that extra few hours of sleep or to stay up late, then you'll have it. When I went blind, I had to relearn how to learn. It was pretty daunting. I learned how to write code to engineer software without being able to see the computer screen. That was not easy, right? I was not a computer science major. I was a business administrator. Well, I was a medical major. And then I switched to business administration because I didn't know what I could do, let alone what I wanted to do. Right. So I went into business management, got a job at a consulting company and started having to write code. I just learned how to turn a computer on a year and a half ago, right? It was you don't bad. waste time. <laughs> no, no, but I, I wanted it. I wanted it badly enough. And that's how it is with whatever, whether it's relationship, whether it's career, you know, if you want it badly enough, you won't have it. You'll go take it. You'll demand it, right? You'll demand it from yourself. Mm -hmm. You'll demand it from people around you and Mm -hmm. not in a, you know, standoffish way, but it's holding yourself to a standard, right? It's Mm -hmm. discipline. It's accountability. For me, like if I miss a day of working out, I feel like a piece of shit, right? For the whole day, it beats me up. It messes with my psyche more than it messes with anything else. Right. Because it's part of my identity, right? It's my identity now. Yeah, and think about like having the identity of someone that doesn't work out. That's what's amazing too. You have enough of those days and suddenly you're identifying with the person that doesn't do the things that would make you better. Yeah, and I would feel guilty because the one thing that all of us can control in any situation is our effort, Mm. right? I couldn't control going blind. I could choose my effort. You know, was it hard to relearn how to learn, write code with my eyes closed? Of course. Was I more comfortable just accepting that and kind of slinking away? What did I really want out of my life? You know, I wasn't responsible for my circumstances, but I had to be accountable for my life and my outcomes. Mm -hmm. If I'm not, who is? What is your definition of freedom? Freedom, I would say, is having the ability. Hmm. What's well, choosing what we what we want to do, I think, um, not what we have to do. And so I think about this. A lot of people talk about retirement and what am I going to do in retirement? I'm going to sit around or I'm going to play golf or I'm going to. I don't really think about it like that, right? I think about retirement that gives me financial freedom, I think, in retirement for others as well to choose what you want to do with your time, not what you have to do with your time. A lot of people are in situations, you know, they have to do certain things to support their lifestyle, or so they believe, right? Having the ability to choose where you spend your time and how you're, you're going to give back, because that's really, that's where I'm at right now on my journey is figuring out how I can give back. Because I know that, you know, ultimately, I lost my vision to help other people find theirs. 
So that's what I want to do. I want to help people discover how they can be better versions of themselves. And so having the freedom to do that for me is very important, you know, helping people, whether it's with the book or interviews like this or you know, giving a presentation, it's very important to me. I mean, even your choice not to have the line be victim to victor, but victim to visionary was so powerful to me. Like, thank you. Thank you. Someone has a twist on this. <laughs> I mean, and I know it's like a play on the whole thing, but still, I mean. Well, yeah. it is. There's a little bit of alliteration that right. goes there. And part of that is I don't think you have to have perfect eyesight to have improved vision. Eyesight does not equal vision. I think people who are visionaries, it comes from within, in my opinion. It doesn't come from what the eyes tell them. It comes from what the soul, the conscious deep inside, what that tells them to do. What is one reason that you're thankful? I know that we didn't speak about a specific heartbreak, but you know, heartbreak, whatever that is to you. Well, I mean, we could take the obvious big one, which is my blindness, right? I am a better person because of my blindness, not in spite of it, right? I am more thoughtful. I have a better perspective. I have more gratitude now than I had when I could see. It was a heartbreak. You know, when I lost my eyesight, my imagined future self died when I was in college. And so that was heartbreaking. I never thought I would get over it. Mm -hmm. I was the victim, but it evolved. And with persistence, with effort, with determination, with an open mind and that curiosity and my tone, why me? I reimagined who I am and transformed who I am and who I wanted to be. And who would think, right, that helping other people with the lessons that I've learned makes going blind worth it? Mm. I coined the word break upward. I'm curious what it might mean to you. Break upward. Yeah, I like that. Well, it's post-traumatic growth, right? Resilience is about bouncing back. So typically when we talk about resilience, it's bouncing back to the same point as we were before. And really what I think you're saying, and I'm, I'm interpreting what I think of as post-traumatic growth, it's bouncing back, not to where we were, but better than before. We've got to bounce back from setbacks better than we were before. And I think that's entirely possible. And it gets into all the concepts that we've been talking about, which is, you know, controlling our, our mindset, our gratitude, and how we approach a given situation. Tell my audience where they can find you. So they can find me at chadefoster.com. It's my website. The book landing page is blindambitionbook.com. All of my social media handles are on my website, but that's Find Chatty Foster for Facebook and Instagram and at Chatty Foster for Twitter. And the book itself, you'll see on the website there, but it's everywhere you can buy books, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, Bookshop, Apple Books, Books a Million, et cetera. Congratulations. Thank You're you. such a powerful force. Well, thank you. I appreciate you having me here. Enjoyed well, talking with you. It was so inspiring. I finally got back to doing these interviews. I took a pause. I never thought that would happen just to really in clarity at what I had created and who I'd become since starting. And so you're the second not in-person interview that I've done. And it's just, it reminds me like, fuck, yeah, this is why I did it. This is why I do this. It's energizing for sure. So thank you for being a huge reminder right now. It's been my pleasure. I do look forward to when we can be in person, hopefully soon. Yeah, that'd be great.
If this episode resonated with you, it would mean the absolute world if you could pass it on and let other people know about it. How you can support this podcast is really just sharing it, telling people about it. If you know someone that's hurting in their heart, tell them about Thank You Heartbreak. And if you want to be a guest on Thank You Heartbreak, reach out to me. You can find me on Instagram at Thank You Heartbreak, or you can email me directly at Chelsea, C-H-E-L-S-E-A, at BreakUpward, B-R-E-A-K-U-P-W-A-R-D, And if you're interested in one-on-one coaching sessions, you can visit my website, breakupward.com slash shop, where you can check out directly from my site. It's a super, 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 super simple process. Of course, I will answer any of your questions before you book. And again, you can email me at chelsea at breakupward.com. There's many different coaching options. And I would love to show up for you as you begin to show up in more wise and clarifying and secure ways for yourself. Thanks for listening, everyone.